The title of this evening's talk is Transformation and Relinquishment of Afflictive States of Mind. And beginning with a quote from a Zen teacher, I don't know uh, who though. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Remember that one. (laughs) Some years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various uh, Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the uh, guests of honor at this meeting, said that often his response uh, to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate, eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This particular definition of realization of Nibbana, being a complete purity of the mind and heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an arahant. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in really, truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've practiced with Sayadaw Upandita and with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course the suttas, uh, in the suttas the Buddha often speaks of this particular aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in, a, in the same way. As our confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to think of having or begin to, to get some sense of this possibility as our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here we all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, 
certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find out that at least to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourself and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more and more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices begins to take deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals, begins to take deeper root. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, deeply encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging or condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can really be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly uh, have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teaching and in relationship to practice. And when I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid 
that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. Venerable Pawak Saidao says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with Pawak Saidao, I said to him, this is hard. It's just too hard. And Pawak Saidao looking at me with this great kindness in his eyes and a kind of light laughter, said, just very simply looked at me and said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are really filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's kind of as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these so-called skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new, anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. It's a a long list. There's more, but that's enough of the list for now. These arisings in our human experience from our present life's experience and carried on from many, many lifetimes experiences. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet. And it's important to note here that it's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. 
Most all of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that maybe we've hidden from or maybe judged as unacceptable and buried it away. Again, these skeletons in the closet that we've probably been hauling around and often unconsciously, unwittingly, maybe for a long time. The author and translator Stephen Mitchell wrote a version of the myth of Sisyphus. And this is it. He says, We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, compassion. Each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, Attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to analyze it, for instance, over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or to fix it, or maybe trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude. We begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and see these 
reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing, or as I like to say, seeing through, is opened. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our room with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without giving the old habit of the past, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this, rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana in his book Mindfulness in Plain English says this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And then I add, within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and we watch ourselves, our mind, our heart, our body. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted and be clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience, with a growing patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves. And through this process of opening to, 
and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe and inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take just a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is quite directly uh, connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's uh, inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent, thus conditional. Everything is in relationship, and in truth in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet we so often believe the opposite of this truth to be the reality of things taking our experience and things to be as though they are really solidly and singularly in place and here to stay forever, which will always, eventually, create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and we project into the imaginary possible future and solidify both in our mind. And yet, life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, during the midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the very big uh, open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows during this season. A rainbow appears because 
of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's very obvious with rainbows. But not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental, physical, and mental phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment and this present moment and this one just as it is right now and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We have a saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, (laughs) in the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of 
right or an absence of real, true understanding. It's experienced as what's sometimes called mental blindness or mental darkness. And it's caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So, going on now to explore a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states, beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like, I can't be with this experience. I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar, new, or old familiar experience, or this strong emotional state, or this pain in the body, or even sometimes this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe we feel kind of frozen or caught or just have this feeling of being simply unable to open and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations, in relationship to other people, as maybe judgments and blaming the critical mind, if we really take it up and believe it. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's because she, it's because they, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, feelings maybe of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right, not being able to do it right, our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is rooted in fear. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, of doubt, of blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is often actually a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's kind of lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to really look 
directly at it, especially if we've taken a peek and found out that it might not be so easy. Many years ago in my practice, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said, fear is just fear. Well, (laughs) when I first heard this, my inward response, I did not say this out loud to him, my inward response was, well, that's easy for you to say. Obviously, some degree of resistance and actually quite a bit of irritation in that thought. But eventually, I did begin to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our mindfulness-based and concentration practices, rooted in a growing kindness towards ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to really come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind and heart gets stronger and our concentration, mindfulness, and metta muscles develop, we, can be, we begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. We're able to do that. Accept that it is and know that it doesn't need to run our life, that it's not who we are. It's not mine, it's not me, it's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, but when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear. We lose the fear of fear itself. And we begin to see it clearly, see through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A couple of years ago, I read an article in 
National Geographic magazine. It was about a woman named Gerland. She was 40 years old at that time, and she was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. And in that article, uh, there was a, just a few sentences about her husband, named, whose, whose name is Ralph, and her relationship to fear. And I'd like to share these with you. He, Ralph, relished how the sense of fear, sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. Gerland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do, when she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand. She didn't feel afraid. And just an aside, Ralph did not continue with the climb. He went back to base camp. Gerland did and got to the top. And when she got to the top of K2, she placed a little Buddha that she had carried in her backpack and set the little Buddha on top of K2. (laughs) The Buddha's teaching offers us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. Keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out and blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is our practice about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historic and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. To practice and understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or without pulling away from experience or without desiring it to be different. So taking a look now at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond 
that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, actually, it can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily with anger. She was quite attached and identified with her anger. And in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and very powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away from her. She was a very lonely person. And yet so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose her, the fuel for her life, if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice, as we all know. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and meta-energy directed towards ourself to open to, be with, and clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover up anger or fear or jealousy or irritation. Practice changes our mind. And it's about making the choice to transform our heart and mind so that, in fact, we embody love. It's a courageous choice. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, and to not pretend anything, but to stay still, be here, be present, in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year was for two months, and then the second year was for one month. One student who stayed the whole two months of practice that first year was a man in his early 40s. He was a very successful big city businessman in Warsaw who had very diligently practiced Zen, Karate, and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment that was uh, with a very ill-tempered and angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time throughout his childhood. With the fear, this fear still present in his adult life, But much more obvious to this man 
was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thought, words, and actions of that same ill temper. And he described himself to me as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to really see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practice and through his interest in Buddhism and meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Prajakapolan, this man very diligently and mindfully practiced metta with just one phrase. This phrase, may I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. And he came back the second year and he said that as the year progressed, he saw his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner and sooner in its process. And thus he was able to let it go more and more often. He returned to Prajeka for this retreat, the second year for the month retreat, as a much changed and much happier man. I think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effect of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. Often one feels quite restless and driven. Nothing's satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large, as does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line is drawn that isn't to be passed, with, in fact, then each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate, develop from a momentarily or a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. So again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance of our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasantness or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends 
on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness, doubt, greed, clinging, expectation, disappointment. It's very helpful to try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them, as I sometimes say, give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body, feeling the emotion directly and in itself without the story. So what are you feeling? Well, maybe heat, tightness, maybe pressure, heaviness, maybe contraction, varying degrees of vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind, meaning at this point, what is your relationship to these sensations? Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and the breath with the walking. Or you might open to the natural world outside. The trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky really take an interest. Notice the birds, chipmunks, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected, present moment attention, 
afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is really pretty amazing. Really beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. If you remember the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear, The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often taught in dialogue with his students, was in dialogue with one student, and the student said, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present, and there is a lot of energy present, the energy that's present in strong emotional states, that energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom the practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc., So now I'd like to spend uh, just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our heart, our mind, is clouded, we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed really being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. 
This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project, for instance, into the future. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, in order for us to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't. That, in fact, it can't. And there are certainly healthy, worthy, very wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, it's in part uh, what got you here on retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer, a personal practice that I was told uh, was a, a, a practice, a personal practice of Mother Teresa's. And it was sent to me, it came in the mail, someone sent it to me. And I, I'm just changing the first word. She, uh, it was, deliver me, O Jesus. I'm going to say, deliver me, O Dhamma. Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I don't think she left anything out. Actually, it's not just her prayer. It's a classical Catholic litany of humility is what it's called. After I, uh, soon after I received this um, practice, this prayer in the mail, I got a phone call from a friend and I said, I have to read this to you. I mean, I just got this amazing practice. And I read it out loud and his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) Well, true, We, we do. We do have a lot to do, don't we? But I find this, every time I read it, I find it quite inspiring. Many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire, to keep them, and also expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to something or to get it back, get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Maybe that's even happened to you here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting you had the other day. Or maybe even a particular period of practice you experienced from your last retreat, whenever that might have been.
it's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. I think a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? So a very simple, uh, quite mundane, uh, personal example. Some years ago I was at a retreat center in New Mexico that has some of the most wonderful flower gardens in the world that I'd ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness, great pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But all I wanted to do was just stay there and continue experiencing that sweet, pleasant smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body a kind of burning irritation sensation in the heart and the mind. Well, I did, I did get up uh, and walked away to do what needed to be done next, but there was still a clinging to that sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of immediate experience. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back. I was planning when I could get back to that garden, imagining, oh, how nice it would be later when I could finally get back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind. It was a moment of suffering, and it happened so quickly, as we know. To sustain and deepen with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear sensing, seeing, and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was a quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, 
to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, burning, burning desire. And for many people, there's often some confusion, some delusion that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see it and really know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he went on through all, each of the six sense doors in this way. And then he said, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred. Jealousy. Fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe at risk of giving you a recipe that maybe you already have and occasionally cook up, uh, I'd like to share this recipe with you. So the ingredients, it's called a recipe for unhappiness. The ingredients, one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, a quarter cup of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with it all. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. So maybe a familiar recipe for some of us. 
a very same, similar teaching, but with a different flavor, comes from Nanshin, Chinese sage Nanshin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we, inspe- we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us a different recipe, another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experiences of the moment and sees them clearly just as they are. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. There's a teaching from the Mahayana tradition, from the Vimalakirti Sutra, that says flowers like blue lotus, like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. Well, when I first read this, I was delighted. (laughs) For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as a human being, we experience many strong and difficult energies. The mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional energies are digested into wisdom. So just for a moment now, looking at a few of these emotional energies and their transformative possibilities. Anger, 
without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness, without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, the possibility of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear and without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our mind and heart, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our practice begins to take deeper root and blossom, we really, truly begin to know that this moment is just enough, just as it is. And we begin to know that through our own experience, the liberation that's immediately available in any moment, the liberation of non-clinging. And closing the talk this evening with a poem. <clears throat> this is a poem called Hokusai Says. Hokusai, as some of you may know, is a very famous Japanese a painter. And his most well-known painting <clears throat> is this huge wave, one big wave, that looks like a kind of a hand with fingers coming over. And down inside the wave that hasn't yet come all the way over, is a little boat with a bunch of people in it. And this is a poem by a man named Roger Keyes. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. 
He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening together chanting the reflections on the sharing of blessings.